This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. got this theme of uh, the Vimalakirti near Desha and this book uh, based on some lectures of, of Bhante Sankarakshita called The Inconceivable Emancipation which is an alternative title for this ancient Buddhist text called the Vimalakirti near Desha, the exposition of Vimalakirti which is also known as the purification of the Buddha field. These old Buddhist Sutras often have many different names that which which sort of draw out different aspects of uh, of the sutra, uh, and it's one of my favourite sutras, and this is one of my favourite <coughs> books of Sangharashta. It's an extremely rich uh, sutra. It's full of different kinds of uh, Buddhist instructions, from very basic uh, Buddhism to the most sort of uh, mind-bogglingly. Uh, metaphysical, um, with an awful lot of drama uh, in it and humour. Uh, it's quite a quite an amusing sutra uh, in places, and a lot of a lot of magic, all centering around the the main character in the sutra, Vimalakirti, uh, who's a householder, uh, but lives like uh, a religious devotee, as the sutra has it, lives in this very, very sort of pure way. He appears to lead the life of a layman, but nobody knows where his family is or uh, anything like that. It's a very, very mysterious uh, character. And he is the embodiment of what's known as Upaya Koshalya, a skillful means, inconceivable skillful means. Skillful means is really uh, the beginning, the, the coming together of wisdom and compassionate activity, wisdom and compassionate activity. It's highly attuned communication that, 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 that communicates in, in the most precise fashion possible for every single individual. This is what Vimalakirti particular, particularly embodies, and there's all sorts of stories about that, and I'm sure you're going to get to that uh, at some point in uh, your series. But... Um, the, the, the concern tonight is this, this phrase, this uh, task of building the Buddha land, which is the, the opening of uh, the sutra, the Vimalakirti Nidesha, which just features the Buddha. I said just features the Buddha and a huge gathering of, of, of different kinds of, uh, of uh, well, not just uh, human beings, uh, men and women, but great bodhisattvas, all different kinds of gods, uh, enlightened beings. I can't sort of list off all the different sort of figures that are there. And the Buddha begins his discourse on what's called the Bodhisattva's purification of the Buddha field. The Bodhisattva's purification of the Buddha field. So we're getting into the arcana of uh, Mahayana Buddhist doctrine here. But the basic idea is that one of the tasks of someone who's taken a vow to gain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, one of their main tasks is to purify a Buddha field, or rather to create, to make a world that is perfectly conducive to the attainment of enlightenment. To create a world where it's easy. It's easy to grow and develop, to transform, all the way to full and perfect liberation to Buddhahood itself. Uh, it's a very um, interesting notion um, in, in Mahayana Buddhism and you might have come across in your studies and in your reading the whole notion of Sakavati. We actually have a community upstairs called Sakavati, the, the, the land of bliss. Well the land of bliss is a Buddha field created by a bodhisattva called um, Help me, someone. Um, Amitabha. Amitabha's the Buddha. Um, he, was, he had a different name when he was a Bodhisattva. 
darn marker, thank you, full marks um, for that. I didn't know. Um, but, yeah, but there's this wonderful world created by the Buddha Amitabha. You arrive there, you're born from a lotus, and all you have to do is listen to the teachings of Amitabha, which is coming from the trees, coming from the birds, um, coming, well, coming from everywhere. That's all you've got to do. You're in this absolutely perfect uh, world. Uh, and so there's this whole idea that, that one of the tasks, your main task as a Buddhist, a Buddhist committed to uh, not just your own practice, but committed to uh, helping others on the path, is to create a world perfectly conducive to Dharma practice, to spiritual practice. So let's let's just let's just you know just pause a bit and see how we can sort of relate to that. It sounds sort of fantastic, uh, and in the sutra it says the Buddha says that it, it is possible for a bodhisattva to create out of nothing a world like that. Apparently it is possible to do that with the power of consciousness. Wouldn't that be amazing, you know, that, that suddenly we're with somebody who has that power and they can, as it were, transport us to an entirely different dimension in which we can actually uh, easily practice uh, the Dharma. But as Sangha actually points out in his lecture that once we were in it, we probably would start to feel a bit dissatisfied. We'd want to, we wouldn't be entirely comfortable just being with our lotus and the teachings of the of the Buddha. We'd want to bring our televisions in, and um, in those days, in his lecture series, there weren't smartphones and so on, but it would be all the technology. And uh, he tells this this very lovely old Indian story of the uh, the woman who sells fish at the market. It gets late. She doesn't. Uh, it, does, it takes a long time for her to sell all her fish. It's too late to go home, so she asks her son, her friend, the flower seller, if she can sleep in his uh, flower stall uh, overnight. And she can't sleep. She's tossing and turning amidst these wonderful flowers, the marigolds and the roses and the jasmine, all those lovely fresh-cut Indian flowers. She just can't sleep in, amidst these beautiful flowers. So she pulls her fish basket under her nose, then she can sleep. The stink of fish is very, very comforting. Uh, she's used to that. She's not used to the sweet smells. So we're a bit like that. Uh, we might be in a wonderful retreat setting that uh, Akasha Mitra mentioned, but after a while we might start to get, get a bit restless, even though the conditions are perfect. We might start to find fault with what's, with what's going on, uh, and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, it's certainly true as Akashimitra was saying earlier, it's often very difficult to keep up a Buddhist practice amidst all the challenges and demands of uh, everyday life, especially in a city like London. It's really, really hard. I know it's really hard. I've done question and answers here sometimes where you know, I've been talking about, about the Dharma, about the way to practice, and people have said almost sort of despairingly how it's just so hard to sustain a meditation practice when you've got to get up early, you've got to travel far on overcrowded trains and buses and all the rest of it. You've got a, a job that's very demanding. You come home, even even rushing to the meditation class at the Buddhist centre creates its own sort of challenges uh, and so on and so forth. It's difficult. Um, so we do need to start in, in, uh, affecting our environment. Yes, Buddhist practice in the end is about taking responsibility for ourselves, transforming our own life and mind. But in order to do that effectively, we've also got to start working on changing and transforming and remaking and rebuilding the world around us and the communities around us. It's the, both, both are important. In doing that, you have to develop other qualities within yourself in creating these 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 other environments something very positive develops in you the whole this whole project of converting this old fire station into a buddhist center had the strong in inspiration of, of building the buddha land wanting to create 
environments within this place which are conducive to our own individual uh, practice. So yes, it's not simply that we can just rest content with working on our mind. Sooner or later, if we're going to make any real progress, really substantial progress in Buddhist practice, we have to start affecting our environment. And in turn, the, the change in the environment, that having an effect on ourselves. There's a sort of dialectical relationship between the two. So tonight I want to give you five precepts uh, for, the, for building the Buddha land. I seem to be in the mood for giving talks at the moment where I give four or five uh, precepts. I kind of like that idea in a talk. So the five sort of maxims in this case, uh, headings if you like, which maybe you, if you like the material, you'll remember and you can go away with and, and, and use. So the five precepts for building the Buddha land are make yourself. Secondly, gather wisdom. Thirdly, make friends. Fourthly, make a world together. And fifthly, revere the mystery. So I'm just going to go through these uh, one by one and we'll see what we, 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 we make of them, see what you make of them. So first of all, make yourself. Make yourself. The whole vision of, of, of building a Buddha land is, it, 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 in, in many ways, it's an act of supreme creativity. Supreme creativity. It's as if the Bodhisattva, the Buddha, is the supreme artist. That's, that's, that's the sort of vision of things, the supreme artist. Uh, creating a, a, an incredibly beautiful world of meaning and value uh, which will be so uplifting for, for the beings within it that they have to do... It's very, very easy to make progress. I mean, that's a, an act of supreme uh, creativity. And really, creativity is, um, is, is one of those words in, in our own tree ratna these days. It, it's, it gets, it's, got, it's a bit tired from overuse in many ways. But that is actually what the Buddhist life really is about. It's about creating it's about creating. It's about making. Um, reading a very interesting study at the moment of uh, uh, Sir Thomas Wyatt, uh, a courtier in the court of Henry VIII, who was a very great poet, and he's described as a maker. This old kind of uh, Elizabethan or pre-Elizabethan idea, even Renaissance idea, that a poet and an artist are makers. They are makers. And what we're doing with our, with, our, with our Buddhist life is making ourselves, remaking ourselves. Um, really, we don't have a lot of choice about this, if, if we, you know, really, with, with, with our lives. That the thing is, you know, the Buddhist vision of, 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 of human beings is, is, that, um, is entirely dynamic. Um, in Buddhism, there is no fixed and unchanging self or essence or anything like that, or uh, unchanging sort of soul. It doesn't mean there isn't a sort of deeper dimension to to us. A kind of um, there isn't heart and uh, you know all those things. Using that sort of language very poetically, but there is nothing that resists change and, and transformation. Everything is in process and the, 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 whether we like it or not we are making ourselves um, this is related to the notion of the law of karma which you might have come across the law of karma the law of karma is basically saying our intentional actions lead to our future if you know the Dhammapada, you'll know that the first two verses of the Dhammapada are really describing that. I've got them written down here. I'll just read them to you. Experiences are preceded by mind, led by mind, and made by mind. If one speaks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows even as the cartwheel follows the hoof of the ox, drawing the cart. Experiences are preceded by mind, led by mind and produced by mind, 
If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness follows like a shadow that never departs. These are extremely important uh, verses. And there they are, right at the beginning of probably the most famous Buddhist text. It's making it very clear that our own life, our own world even, is entirely within our hands. There's no appeal to an exterior deity or to fate or to chance or anything like that. We make, we shape, we remake our lives constantly. If we act with what the, the, the text calls impurity, out of unskillful states of, of craving and hatred and aversion, that's just going to lead to a life of toil, of suffering. That incredible image of the, of the, of the wheel following the hoof of the ox. We're just making these deep ruts uh, in our lives. This is very habitual, very repetitive, very depressing, uh, really. And, and in the end, really, really hard work. Um, the, the, the sort of Buddhist vision of, of what is called the samsara is that it's, it's really, really hard work. It's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. We make that. We make that. And we can make a different uh, self, if you like, in the future, to use that sort of language, a different us, by acting out of a pure mind, a skillful mind, out of, well, not just non-greed, uh, non-craving, but uh, uh, contentment and generosity, not just out of non-hatred, but loving-kindness, metta, uh, compassion, generosity, um, and out of understanding and wisdom and, and non-confusion. That will lead to us our happiness and well-being. Um, and that happiness will be like a shadow that never departs. It's an interesting image. That means we're walking in the light. That means we're walking in light. And, and the shadow is, is something like, a, as it were, an aura that we're, we're carrying all the time. It's interesting, the word for purity here is a word related to faith and trust and a sense of something higher. Uh, the word for impurity in the verse before is, is interesting. It literally means spoilt, which I think is rather good. We, 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 when we sort of, as it were, let ourselves down, we spoil our lives. It's not to do with being sort of sinful or evil. We spoil a possible future. Whereas we act out of faith and confidence and knowing and a sense of a higher purpose and meaning, that's going to create this, this other reality of, of, of light moving forward creatively. So these verses are right at the beginning of the Dhammapada are making it clear that the Buddhist life begins with deciding to remake ourselves. Deciding to remake ourselves. Another way of putting it, we take responsibility for our lives. We take responsibility for our lives. Yes, I know very well, living at Padmaloka, I listen to a lot of people's life stories. Uh, it's incredible, you know, that some people are still standing, let alone finding their way to Buddhism. Really, really tough starts in life. You know, difficult family situations, uh, you know, different you know, wrong paths taken, leaving to sort of catastrophic events. I mean, I really do feel very, very fortunate. But the thing is, it doesn't matter in a sense, what has happened to you, of course it matters. But the only way to go forward is to take charge, is to take full charge of your life. It's very interesting, the following verses in the Dhammapada are all about blame. They're all about giving up blame and resentment. Um, those who entertain such thoughts that he abused me, he beat me, he robbed me, he conquered me, will not still their hatred. Very, very clear. And then it goes on as the verses go on to emphasise loving kindness and, and, and so on in different ways. Very, very strong uh, teaching. Rather irritating teaching. Um, you know, I often find it... I get, I get annoyed with Buddhism sometimes because um, you can't do jihad on, on people. Um, do inner jihad, you know, that's, that's fine, which is... According to Muhammad, the, the greater jihad is internal, not external. But anyway, that's another matter. Um, 
but you have to recreate the, the whole the whole business of of uh, Buddhist life is really making and remaking yourself uh, constantly and not giving yourself any any outs. You know, you can't justify hatred, you can't justify violence, you can't say he or she made me do this. You have to take moral responsibility and you have to get over that idea that you've just sort of been thrown into life. I think it's Heidegger says somewhere that, that he uses this notion of thrownness. The experience of so many people in, in modern life is that we're just sort of thrown here, almost arbitrarily. And I think that's how a lot of people feel. I think he's got a bit of an insight there. But Buddhist traditions say, okay, if you feel that you're thrown here, that doesn't matter. You have to shape your life. You have to go forward. You've really got no choice but to really get down to taking responsibility for yourself. Take up, if you're serious about Buddhism, take up Buddhist practice of ethics, meditation, wisdom. Really take hold of yourself. There really is no other alternative. And I think it's very important to stress this in a talk on building the Buddha land or in a series where you're talking a lot about you know, the ideal society or the ideal world or the ideal sangha. Because unless you, unless you really understand that the start of Buddhist life is taking responsibility of yourself, for yourself, making yourself, remaking yourself, it's very easy to turn the sangha, the community, into something about that, that should be giving something to you. Um, that, that can very, very easily happen. You can start thinking that the, the friends in your sangha aren't good enough, your teachers aren't good enough, the centre isn't good enough. And before you know it, you've, you've, you've ended up, well, the Buddha isn't good enough, and so on and so forth. And, you know, you end up not really doing anything with your life and just drifting, which a lot of people do. A lot of people spend their time going from group to group, religion to religion, technique to technique not realizing that the first place they need to start is themselves in a sense it doesn't really matter what you do providing it's skillful ethical so long as you really do it you really take it up there's a great saying which i often quote probably quoted here more than once sangsara is the tendency to find fault with others you know the world of of, of repetitive suffering life is the tendency to find fault with others so i guess you could say the opposite nirvana is the tendency to find virtue in others to find quality in others in in all others so we start with this remaking ourselves taking full responsibility for ourselves in the vimalakirti nidesha one of my favorite passages happen occurs quite early on uh, Vimalakirti, one of the things he does, he manifests sickness, that's the way the, the text puts it, in order to teach people the Dharma. Because when a great person is sick in India, a great sort of leader of the community, everybody <coughs> gathers. They're all really concerned. They're all going to gather outside of their house, you know, to make sure they're okay. So Vimalakirti, in order to attract people, manifests sick sickness. Actually, he really is sick. It goes with embodiment. Um, and he's asked about uh, uh, his sickness and the condition of, it, of, of, of his body. Uh, and he gives this incredible teaching. I mean, it, it, it's such a, it's a really, really strong teaching on, on the nature of the body. I think the, 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 the discourse, the homily on, on the body begins with, friends, this body, is so impermanent, unworthy of, of, of confidence. And he goes through you know, all of the aspects of the body, really revealing its impermanence and the certainty of its death and passing, using quite vivid imagery. It's, a, it's very, very, very powerful uh, meditation, harking back to the Buddha's teachings on the body. But it's essentially a, a teaching in impermanence on the illusory nature of the body and, and the fact that it will get sick, it will let you down, that it's not a refuge, a source of security. Uh, and instead of relying on this body, of course, Bimla is not saying you don't 
rely on it to the extent that you can rely on it. But he says you need to be directing your aspirations to the development of what he calls the Tathagatakaya, the body of the Buddha. And the body of the Buddha is born of the great Buddhist practices. It's born of the practice of ethics. It's born of meditation. It's born of wisdom. It's born of the, 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 the practice of the precepts. It's born of generosity. It's born of ethics and patience and energy. It's a wonderful teaching because what it's saying is that all this Buddhist practice that we're engaged in is building something. It's giving birth to something. And I think that's important, that it's important to, 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 to try and really visualise, if you like, our future, our future Buddhahood uh, even. That's what he's saying. And you direct your aspirations, he says. In other words, you go for refuge, you commit, you put all your energy into the creation of this enlightened body, this collection of, of qualities. And of course, this is one of the reasons why we have the Buddha images, why we have all the great you know, Buddhist art. It's to give us a vivid picture of the Buddha body and the qualities that we're, that we're aspiring to develop. So this is this first uh, business, of this, this first precept of, uh, to do with building the Buddha land. Make yourself, all those committed to creating a Buddha land must first of all really get down to making and remaking themselves. A spiritual community, a Sangha, is made up of all those who are concerned with, committed to, making and remaking uh, themselves first and foremost and taking full responsibility for that. So that needs to be the, the, the very basis of, of, of everything. And like I say, I, I want to emphasise this because it's, it's all too easy to find fault with other people within our Sangha and our spiritual communities and in our centres and so on and so forth. And you know, we must be very, very careful uh, not, not, not to spend our time doing that. It doesn't mean that people are perfect. Of course they're not. And if things need to be sorted out, you have to sort them out. But they're on the basis of taking full responsibility for oneself, of creating and recreating oneself. Supremely important. And secondly, sort of coming out of this, I've used this expression, gather wisdom. It's no good having, trying to build a Buddha field if, if you don't have any wisdom. Uh, and I'm deliberately using the word wisdom, not, not the word insight or, you know, transcendental wisdom or something like that. We have to realise that part, a big part of Buddhist practice is learning. Not academic learning, as, as Gnanavacha said, but there are things to learn. There are things to learn. Uh, there, are, there is a different vision to, to open up to. One of the things that we need to, to recognise is how deeply conditioned we are by the views and the opinions and attitudes of the world around us, which are very often unexamined. You know, there's so many things which you, we, we, we assume are sort of absolute truth and are, the way, and are the way things are, which actually are antithetical to Buddhist practice. It's very, very interesting. And the only way you can undo that is by exposing yourself to wisdom, by exposing yourself to the Buddha's teaching. It's the only way you can actually start to see you know, your, your unanalyzed views and opinions, which actually hold you back, which actually restrict you and, and limit you. Um, and the, the Buddhist path, in terms of wisdom, is seen as, definitely seen as a progression. You don't go straight to it. Sometimes you can have a glimpse, even before you become a Buddhist, a glimpse of sort of perfect vision into the true nature of things, which sort of opens things up, which does break through the, 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 the kind of assumptions that you have about life. But even if you have that, you've still got to enter into a training. And the traditional uh, way in which wisdom uh, develops is, is, they say, through hearing or learning, through reflecting, and through making it a living experience. So, first of all, there's the wisdom that comes through hearing. 
if you you know if you want to learn Buddhism, there has to be some receptivity. There has to be some some openness to what is uh, being taught. I mean, presumably that that's there in you because you wouldn't be here otherwise. You've made the effort to turn up tonight. That's you know. So presumably there is something that you're interested in learning about about Buddhism, about the Dharma, about about Buddhist practice. Um, but you, you you need to really sort of take it in. Uh, sometimes I think, you know, in the in the in the world of, for want of a better term, the sort of spiritual world in the modern West, sometimes things seem to be presented that you you go for the maximum experience with the minimum amount of effort. That seems to be the way it's sort of presented. Especially if you, know, you don't have to leave your room even, you can click on to some somebody giving a talk and bang you're enlightened you know within an hour or something so maximum experience max out on experience minimum amount of engagement buddhist teaching doesn't go like that traditionally that's not the way you learn you know you, you know traditionally if you really you know want to learn from from a master in a community uh, from a teacher in a community you 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 spend a lot of time uh, qualifying you know, we, you know, being, being, you know, waiting out traditionally in the snow or knocking on the door, and even then, the the, the teacher might re refuse to teach you. A lot of the time in, in in monasteries, you're you're told that first thing you have to do is spend a lot of time working in the kitchens. Um, in Zen monasteries, apparently, this is the first place that you're sent. You just got to work. You've got to pound rice. You've got to cut vegetables. You've got to clean the place. This is all part of learning. This is all part of learning. And yes, there'll be a teaching every so often. You know, and, and, and no doubt you'll take it a lot more seriously because it's happening in a context where you've really put yourself out, where you've had to sort of go a long way. You've had to, uh, uh, you're not just, you know, being given it immediately. You've got to sort of pick up on the whole ethos of, of, of the community. It's very, very important. So, you know, I know here at the centre there's quite a lot of... Um, requests for volunteers, you know, to help out cooking on retreats and, you know, organising retreats and cleaning the centre. That is part of gathering wisdom. That is part of actually learning. I mean, very often friends of mine say about living at Padmaloka that, that they learn more from, you know, as much for, or even more from the study groups than in the sort of day-to-day -day interactions that, what, that, that go on between people the day-to-day -day interactions, the sort of, the issues that come up, as it were, you know, when you, when you interact with people, even when you fall out a bit with people, or learning to cooperate with people that you don't particularly want to cooperate with. That's one of the ways in which you, 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 you learn and gather wisdom. Um, but of course, you've also, it's also very important to study. Uh, to actually study the teachings. We put a lot of emphasis on study in our own Sangha. We have, we have a Dharma training course for those who, who get, get more deeply involved. And you know, you, you, every week you spend going through a text with somebody more experienced and with a group of, of, of people really trying to understand what is this text actually saying? What are the implications of that for my life? That's where it's starting to turn into making it you know, a, a, a source of reflection. What are the implications of this teaching for me and my life? You might even start to see the disparity between what the Buddha is saying and your habitual behaviour. And then out of that, it becomes a living experience. The wisdom starts to turn into life, into life practice. So, yes, gather wisdom. We can't have a Buddha land unless there is real wisdom within it. It's not just some sort of groovy utopia, uh, you know, where we turn up completely unregenerated with all sorts of sloppy thinking and, you know, just plain, you know, dogma, you know, the dogmas of, of modern life. That's not the way this, this works. We need to have some real ballast, if you like, some real wisdom, some real knowing, tremendously uh, important. And of course, one of the things that's going to start to become clearer and clearer through the gathering of wisdom, it, well, there, well, there are a number of things. Sometimes um, 
when we talk about wisdom, when Buddhists talk about wisdom, they, they can get very kind of metaphysical. Um, you know, it, it, this is where, where, where Zen Buddhism, I think, is quite good because you try and be vent, uh, metaphysical with a Zen master, you'll probably get a slap traditionally. <laughs> Um, you know, or, or you know, there's that there's that great um, koan, isn't there? Koan, that 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 story, that public case of that great Chan master Yun Men, um, where he's asked, "What is the talk? What is the teaching? What is the Dharma that goes beyond Buddhas and patriarchs?" So what is the, the teaching that transcends enlightenment, the Buddhas, and the patriarchs, the great uh, Chan masters? Yun Men's reply, cake. <laughs> cake. And there's a, a, a completely mind-boggling commentary on what the meaning of cake uh, actually means. The best bit of it was uh, even the cake stuffed in doesn't stop the talking. As if, what Yun, as if what Yun Men is saying, what he's really trying to say, I want to stuff a cake right in your mouth. So thank goodness for these Zen masters, because they, they want to just get away from the metaphysics. There is a kind of ordinary, everyday wisdom. It's, you find it in the Dhammapada. You know, the, this, sort of, this sort of almost street wisdom that, 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 that we need to be getting hold of first of all. I mean, these first two verses from, from the Dhammapada to do with karma, we need that wisdom. That's, mu that's much more to the point, or, or the wisdom of you know, where the Buddha says, the others, in other words, those not really practicing uh, a, a true Dharma life, the others do not realise that we are all heading for death. Those who do realise it will end their quarrels. That's tremendous. That's that. When I first heard that verse, I thought the Buddha must be enlightened. He must be enlightened. There's nothing about emptiness or not-self or illusory nature. No. When you know that you're, you're, you're going to die, you will stop quarrelling. You will harmonise with others. You will develop loving-kindness to, other, to others. You know that life is too short and too uncertain you know, to, to waste time in quarrelling and battling. That's a tremendous wisdom. That's, that's the kind of wisdom that we need. So it's very important to remember that sort of street wisdom, as it were, which is far from street, isn't it? It's, it transcends the street, the transcendental street. Um, but, of course, there is also this great emphasis on, yes, the illusory, pliable nature of life um, that's how we can make and remake ourselves seeing uh, impermanence in substantiality uh, seeing that everything is like uh, a wonderful magician's illusion everything is actually a creative display uh, very important to have that uh, to, to have the inklings of that that there is nothing fixed and unchanging and there's a wonderful uh, teaching on this in the Vimalakirti Nidasha where uh, there's a, a dialogue, there's a lot of dialogue as I, I, I hope you'll hear about during the, this, this course of uh, teachings you've got on Vimalakirti Nidasha. A lot of dialogue between Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom. is the only person who's prepared to go and see how Vimalakirti is. Everybody's The Buddha's asked various people to go. They're all scared because they've all had interactions with Vimalakirti where they've been humiliated. He's so wise and so so on it. Um, Manju Gosha, Manju Shri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, he goes and he asks a question of Vimalakirti. He asks the question, how should a Bodhisattva view all living beings? How should a Bodhisattva see people? You know, if you're going to build the Buddha land, what's your attitude to others? We've been looking at the attitude to ourself, as it were, but what's the attitude to others? And he gives this, again, this incredible teaching on that he should see everybody as like a magician's illusion. And he goes through low, many, many similes of, of living beings that, that, that all of us are, yes, illusory, uh, insubstantial, like a mirage, a rainbow, arising and passing. 
you'd think that that's a rather nihilistic view. Um, but it's not uh, in, 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 in the Buddhist tradition. It's actually a, a sen- more of a sense of wonder, sort of a, the, the, the wonderful manifestations of, of life arising and passing, seeing into this unfixed nature. Having done that, having given this incredible teaching, Manjushri then asks, but then how does, or what is, how is, the Bodhisattva's great love uh, for living beings? And it's one of the most beautiful passages in all of Buddhist literature, as far as I'm concerned, where Viminakirti tells Manjushri and everybody present what the great love, the Mahamaitri, the Mahametta, uh, is he just goes through all these different, all these different descriptions of what love is, what loving kindness really is for all beings. He says something like, "Just as I've experienced the Dharma myself, just as I've experienced reality, so must I communicate it to all living beings." So he develops the great love, which is truly a refuge for all living beings. Wonderful expression that that telling us that what loving, the loving-kindness that we're communicating to, to others is something protective, something absolutely reliable. That's what we're looking to do in our metabhavna, if you didn't realise it. We're looking to develop an absolutely reliable loving-kindness, not just to our friends, but to everybody. Um, he goes on and, and talks about developing, I can't go into all the different kinds of love that he describes, but one of the favourite ones I have, he, he, he develops the love, the Bodhisattva develops the love, which uh, is the Bodhisattva's love, which continuously matures and ripens living beings. So loving kindness is, is what brings about the growth of others, their involvement and transformation and change. So you, you can see from this sort of passage that there's no kind of conflict between wisdom, seeing the unfixed nature of all of life, and a loving kindness which is taking the unfixed nature of us and bringing about the flourishing of, of that life. That's, that's what Vimalakirti uh, communicates. And of course, if we're going to build this Buddha land, we need to be developing that kind of love that protective, nurturing uh, love, which is also brings about people's awakening, their enlightenment. It's, it's an amazing uh, passage. Um, so this brings me to the third of the precepts for building the Buddha land, which are called make friends. Make friends. Um, it's, a, it's a lovely idiom in, a, in, a, in our English language. We don't talk about grabbing friends or getting friends. The idiom is making friends, making friends. And we make friends out of our loving kindness. We make friends out of making love, out of making matter. That's how we make friends. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it's very sad when, when, you, when you hear it. Sometimes people feel that they don't have any friends. They feel lonely in the end of it. They might have people they socialise with, they might have family and colleagues, but sometimes at night, perhaps alone in their, in their bed in the middle of the night, they can feel terribly lonely. Not just alone, but deeply lonely. That There's no one to really share in the heights, the depths, uh, really, that they can really talk to and really communicate with. And even just share their own love. I think sometimes a lot of the sort of suffering that people have and frustration is because they can't actually express love to somebody, uh, loving kindness to somebody. You've ever had that feeling, what a relief it is, when you can really express love, very clean love, not a love where you want something, not an infatuation. I mean, straightforward, friendly, (coughs) kindly love. You know, where you really see that person, you love them for what they are. It's such a wonderful feeling when you, when, you, when you can express that, when you can live that. I think there's a lot of frustrated lovers in this, in this world. And, uh, you know, 
I know depression is one of the big things nowadays. I think I sometimes wonder if actually a lot of depression is to do with the repression of the positive. The, the, it's not murky, horrible, dark, smelly stuff that's often repressed. It's, it's often very, very uh, positive, creative, uplifting uh, emotion that people haven't had the chance to to really express. So we need to have the have, have the courage to make friends. And of course, when you take up Metta Bhavna, and that's the basis, you know, when you, you nurture that loving kindness, that friendly love, what starts to happen? You do start to make friends. It is a kind of magic practice. I know a lot of people find it very, very difficult. I think you have, do you still do your courses here? Or who hates the Metta Bhavna? Yeah, who hates the Metta Bhavna? Because it's such a sort of problem for you. I love the Metta Bhavna. I mean, I don't mean I'm very good at it, but I love doing the Metta Bhavna. I love sitting there kind of trying to generate, you know, loving kindness and, and, and all the rest of it. I think it's, a, I think it's an absolutely wonderful uh, practice. Um, but of course, it's not just something you do on your cushion. It's important to, to consciously, without being too self-conscious, to, to make friends, to go out to people. Uh, to spend time with people. And it's such a big feature of our Sri Ratna community. We put a lot of emphasis on friendship, friendliness, and out of friendliness, the fruit of that is friendships. Not exclusive friendships, but friendships which are expansive and, and, and inclusive. Um, it does so many things for you, you, friendship. Of course, yes, you won't feel so lonely. You'll feel that you're, you're, you're able to share you know your life much more fully there's there's this wonderful insight i think it's cicero eventually who originally had this insight but it's taken up by others cicero says something like a friend is another self i think that's a fantastic insight actually you know that the the you know when i'm i'm blessed by some very close friends and i feel very fortunate in that and you know with some of those friends i can articulate my most private and sort of secret uh, thoughts and, and experiences, not, you know, dark stuff, but also, you know, more intimate sort of spiritual things. Because that person is both me and not me. They are another self. I think that's what a friend can be. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it is, it is interesting that traditionally in the West, in the classical world friendship was was always written about by by the great classical uh, writers and uh, i think we're trying to in our own movement to bring about a kind of renaissance of, of of such friendships and of course there's another aspect to it it's a friendship based upon buddhist practice based upon something that as it were transcends us as individuals that, that, that does bring about community. Without uh, making such friendships, you can't have a Buddha land. Um, you know, imagine coming here and it was a really cold place where, where people weren't friendly. I mean, very often people, people sort of say, oh, one of the great things about, um, you know, tree, you know, I, I often hear it from people who've gone away from Tree Ratna to other Buddhist groups or something like that and I bump into them and they say it's, it's good, I enjoy the, the, the teachings important but there isn't anything like the friendliness and friendship that you have in Tree Ratna and I often say well that's not a mistake you know it's not a sort of that is, that it's not as if that it's not uh, just by chance that uh, we have a, a strong culture of friendship, it's actually coming out of a vision of life it's actually coming out of seeing the importance of uh, Dharma practice transcending self and other. It's not just about oneself. It has to start flowing into relationship and being open to, 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 to others. So friendship is, is tremendously important and a community characterised by love and friendship. You can't have a Buddha land without it. Um, and you and you notice it when, when as your friendships develop within the sangha, the changes that that, 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 that that happen in you, and the changes in your friends. Sometimes it's hard to separate each other out. 
I think that's my experience at, at, at Papaloka very strongly, where I've lived together with, with, with a number of people for, for a very, very long time. And, and very often, you know, people are very grateful to, 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 to what we give or what I give. And um, I, I, I'm very, very clear in my own mind that would not be possible without the community of friends that I'm a part of at Padmaloka and more widely within our community. It's very, very hard to kind of isolate something, a quality, just in one's own self. It really doesn't seem like that to me. You know, that without what others are doing and what I'm doing with others, they just weren't, whatever, you know, the virtues just such as they are, just would not be there. They would not be happening. Uh, so making friends... You know, you could have the most beautiful Buddhist centre, you know, which is just really aesthetically wonderful. But unless you've got a community of friends, a wider community of friends within it and a culture of friendship, it would be like a hospital without doctors. That's what it would be like. It, it really would. It just, it would be, it would be useless. I remember in India, when I lived for a while, I, I went with, when we first started things in India, when Tri Ratna first started there with Lokamitra, Sangharakshita came. It was his sort of return visit. And he gave these wonderful, big public lectures, you know, to thousands of, of people. I'd never seen anything like it. And we were very, we were very poor. We didn't have, there were just a few of us. We, we didn't have really any money. We were sort of beg borrowing and I won't say stealing, but, but doing it. We had the places where we had to teach the Dharma. Um, yeah, it wasn't stealing, but there was a, a, a disused bungalow in Pune that we used on Sunday mornings. And I think that one of the, the Indian order members, you know, slipped a, a few rupees to the watchman of the, um, of, the, uh, of the bungalow so we could just use this veranda to have a meditation class. Um, we had to just use anything we could get, like a managed to get a garage in a, in a Christian house because the car was out at church on a Sunday morning. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, the order member who managed to arrange for this place said, yes, and we will be teaching birth control in the classes. I mean, we didn't, but, I mean, that's, well, that's a fib, wasn't it? Skillful means. But anyway, they obviously weren't Catholics. Um, Anyway, well, anyway, we, so we really we didn't have a big centre, we didn't have a big temple or anything like that. And of course, in India, if you're, you, you know, th those sorts of things count for a lot if you've got a big prestigious uh, place. And we just didn't have the resources for that at that time. And Sangar actually, in one of his talks, said, "Look, we you, some of you might be wondering why we haven't built a really big place." He didn't mention anything about not having any money. He said, "Well." What we're doing is, we're and he's right, we're building up community. We're building up Sangha. We're building up a community of friends so that when we do get a place like that, it really will have the right spirit. He said exactly the same thing about building this place, uh, converting this place. He, he, he said he was really glad that there wasn't some big foundation putting in loads of money so that we, we, uh, we could just turn up and teach Buddhism. It was good that we had to build and rebuild the place and do that because in doing that we were going to learn how to run it. We were going to learn how to be a community so that we could then learn how to run the place. So make friends. Make friends. If you want to change the world around you, make friends in whatever way you can and develop loving kindness. I, I do the Metabhavna pretty much every day. For this reason, um, you know, it's 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 sort of the it's sort of a main dharma practice for me. Uh, I need to, I need to. I'm too sort of too much, far too emotional for my own good. Um, you know, so I actually need to to to, to do it. Um, and even if you aren't emotional, well, that's another good reason to do the metabolism every day. But I would really recommend getting really getting to grips with that practice and really putting to, into practice in, in, in daily life. Make friends. And then the next one, and I, I, I should finish soon, um, make a world together. Make a world together. Um, 
this is really sort of bringing us to 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 to, to the heart of the matter really of building the buddha land as as a group of friends you then have to start bodying forth a world i mean in a way i don't really have to say very much because that's what's happened here really it was a group of friends who moved into the old fire station which was a a burnt out hulk of a building which the london borough of tower hamlets at the time really didn't know what to do with so it was a group of friends who you know came in and managed to convince these these the, the labor councillors of the time that they could do something with it and they did we did um that's what a group of friends then does out of that strong sense of friendship you create a world you create a world now there could be all sorts of projects that you get involved with to do that it's not just about you know you have to keep doing it and redoing it that even this place is still being remade uh, rebuilt um, in, in in different ways it would be good if we had more space more property i'm sure that's in people's minds because you know the the, the place is 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 bursting at the seams there's the retreat center at vadras now that's a world that's created but it doesn't have to be on that scale you know it might be the sort of thing that you and a group of friends you create some sort of environment which people can come into and in coming into that environment they they change i can't sort of think of examples it might be an outreach project with 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 a you know teaching meditation in another part of london or something like that could it could in principle be anything it could be a cultural project of some kind or another i mean you have to sort of fill in the blanks really but when you start to make a world together when you start to interact with bricks and mortar and you know with the institutions of the world the challenges really come the challenges really come when you start to body forth your your buddhist practice when you really try to do something you start to come up to, against a lot of things which are harder to change and transform. I've been reflecting quite a lot um, lately on how things have, have sort of changed in the world in, in, in relation to our own Buddhist movement. I mean, the fact that we could get this place goes back to a, an age in the 1970s where I would say society was far less regulated than it is now. Things are incredibly regulated, incredibly sort of controlled, and incredibly expensive um you know i i you know was living in squats back in back in the 1970s in 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 north london you know we could take over these places do something with them change the kind of you know vibe around uh, the atmosphere around a place sort of fairly easily could live on very very little it's much more it's much more demanding now i think to to create an environment to create a world all the more reason why we have to do it. It needs a lot of ingenuity, it needs a lot of talent, a lot of skills. Um, one of the wonderful things about tree rapment these days is the sort of range of skills and talents and abilities that, that are involved in our Sangha. And I think if, you, if you're serious about, about living a Buddhist life with others, uh, I'm serious about wanting to, to create environments. Start talking to the, to the order members in this centre and the people involved and see what you can do to, to, to be a part of that, to creating these environments. I'm going to finish with the last point, and that is revere the mystery. Revere the mystery. My talk has been, I hope it's been practical, useful, whatever. Um... But in a way, it's probably been a bit prosaic in some ways because there does need to be an element in all this where you, something that you, in building the Buddha land, there's something about these Buddha lands uh, in, in the Buddhist tradition which are inconceivable, transcendent, uh, beyond conception, magical. That has to be part of our uh, Buddhist life. That sort of, you know, the, 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 one of the things I find really sort of irritating, again, it seems to be more prevalent than everybody. Everybody wants to know the sort of the cash value of everything, the sort of uh, 
the practical application of everything immediately. It's very, people find it very hard just to bow their head and revere that which that can't be contained and, in a sense, understood. And one of my favourite passages in the Vimalakirti Nidesha is uh, the passage called The Goddess. There's this chapter. I hope you do this chapter. The Goddess. The Goddess. The Devi. She doesn't have a name, uh, this Goddess. She just suddenly turns up. In fact, she lives in Vimalakirti's house. She just lives there. We don't know what she looks like. Uh, we don't know what colour she is. She's just this nameless Devi, this goddess, this other. Um, don't think that that means that she's a woman or anything like that. It's She transcends gender, I would say. She's just the Devi, just the goddess. She's lived for 12 years. Why 12? Why 12 years? What's 12 got to do with it? But 12 years in Vimala Kirti's house. And she's a sort of... She testifies to the fact that Vimalakirti in this house, in this house of miracles, his house, which apparently can expand to contain the entire cosmos without shrinking all the other houses in the great city of Vaishali, has that kind of magic quality. Um, she says that the goddess says, well, in this, in this house, um, there's only been the teaching of the Dharma for the liberation of all living beings. It's the only way this man, Vimalakirti, teaches. But she says other things. She talks about eight qualities in this house. So let me just mention the eight strange and wonderful things that manifest themselves constantly in Vimalakirti's house. Vimalakirti's house actually seems to be a Buddha land within the wider world, a sort of place to go where, a house to go to, which is, well, wonderful. Listen. A light of golden hue shines here constantly so bright that it is hard to distinguish day and night and neither the moon nor the sun shines here distinctly. Whoever enters this house, human or non-human, is no longer troubled by their passions. From the moment they are within, all their troubles disappear. This house is never forsaken by the great gods, Chakra, Brahma, the protectors of the world, and the Bodhisattvas from other Buddha fields. This house is never empty of the sounds of the Dharma, the discourse on the six perfections and the discourses of the irreversible wheel of the Dharma. This house, in this house, one always hears the drums, the rhythms, the songs and the music of gods and humans. From this music constantly resounds the sound of the infinite Dharma of the Buddha. In this house, there are always four inexhaustible treasures, replete with all kinds of jewels, which never decrease, although all the poor and wretched may partake to their satisfaction. At the wish of this good man in this house, Vimalakirti, come the innumerable Buddhas of the Ten Directions. And when they come, they teach the gateway into the Dharma called the secrets of all the Buddhas, and then depart. And in this house, all the splendours of the abodes of the gods and all the splendours of the fields of the Buddhas shine forth in this house. So these are the eight strange and wonderful things of, of Vimalakirti's house, which the goddess, this mysterious goddess, who in the course of the sutra has a very, very powerful effect on the proceedings before sort of vanishing. This is the sort of quality of the house. There's always a light shining. There's always the sound of the Dharma, which is heard in a kind of music. There's always the Buddhas coming in, teaching the secrets of the Buddhas. When you come into this house, 
you're not troubled by any defilements or anything like that. It's a place of marvels and wonders. So this is, I think, really what a Buddha field should be like. This is what really this house, this centre should be like. Perhaps you could even make your own house or flat or apartment, something like that house through perhaps these, these four, these five different precepts. So make yourself, gather wisdom, make friends, make a world together and reveal a mystery. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 